He also said to his disciples, the disciples, "There was a rich man who had managed, had a manager, and charges were brought to him. The manager was wasting his possessions, and he called him and said to him, "What is this that I hear about you? Turn the account of your management, for you can no longer be manager." And the manager said to himself. What shall I do, since I, since my master is taking the management away from me? <clears throat> I am not strong enough to dig, and I am ashamed to beg. I had decided what to do, so that when I am removed from management, people may receive me into their houses. So, summoning his master's debtors one by one, he said to the first, "How much do you owe my master?" He said, "A hundred measures of oil." And he said to him. Take your bill, sit down quickly, and write fifty. Then he said to another, "And how much do you owe?" And he said, "A hundred measures of wheat." And he said to him, "Take your bill and write eighty." The master commanded this the dishonest manager of his shrewdness, for The sons of the world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. And I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth, so that when it fails, they may receive you into eternal dwellings. The eternal dwellings. One who is faithful in very little is also faithful in much, and one who is dishonest in very little is also dishonest in much. If there, then you have not been faithful in unrighteousness, in righteous wealth, you will entrust to you the true riches. And if you have not been faithful in that which is another's, who will give you that which is your own? No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one. And despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. The Pharisees, who were lovers of money, heard all these things, and they ridiculed him. And he said to them, "You are those who justify yourselves before men, and but God knows your hearts. For what is exalted among men is abominable in the sight of God." The law of the prophets were, law and the prophets were until John. Since then, the good news of the kingdom of God is preached, and everyone forces his way into it. But it is easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one dot of the law to become void. Everyone who divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery. And he who marries a woman divorced from her husband commits adultery. There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen, and who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with the, with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. The poor man died and was carried by angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died. And was buried, 
And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that in your lifetime received your, you your good things, and Lazarus, Lazarus in like manner bad things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in anguish. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed, in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able, and none may cross from there to us. And he said, Then I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. But Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets, let them hear them. And he said, No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. He said to him, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. You may be seated. I was drawn uh, this, this morning as we were singing the last song. I, my eyes caught the, the, the song adjacent to the one we were singing, Revive Us Again. But on page 294, there's a, there's a song that I'm not familiar with the tune, but I was struck by the lyrics in light of our text this morning. The chorus says, set my soul afire, Lord, set my soul afire, make my life a witness of thy saving power. Millions grope in darkness, waiting for thy word. Set my soul afire, Lord, set my soul afire. Stanza one, set my soul afire, Lord, for thy holy word. Burn it deep within me, let thy voice be heard. Millions grope in darkness in this day and hour. I will be a witness Fill me with thy power. Set my soul afire, Lord, for the lost in sin. Give to me a passion as I seek to win. Help me not to falter, never let me fail. Fill me with thy spirit, let thy will prevail. And set my soul afire, Lord, in my daily life. You know, I was thinking about that not just on Sunday morning inside the walls of a building. In my daily life, set my soul afire, Far too long I've wandered in this day of strife. Nothing else will matter but to live for thee. I will be a witness for Christ lives in me. Set my soul afire. Friends, that's what's needed. And we're going to be reading God's word this morning. And I believe those lyrics that I just read to you are going to be very appropriate in light of the text that we're reading this morning. A very sobering passage of text before us today. Before we dive in, I'm going to ask if you would to join me in a word of prayer. Father, we are grateful. We thank you that you are a righteous and merciful God. You are almighty. You are all powerful. You know all things. You see all things. All things are before you. Father, you are an all-wise God. 
You are a God who knows things from the beginning to the end. You are a God who knows everything about us. The Bible says you know even the hairs on our head. How many there are. You know our thoughts. You judge our hearts. You are our creator. You've made us. You know everything about us. And this morning as we come to your word, as your word is open before us, I pray that the realization of who you are would be brought to the forefront. The realization of your son Jesus would be brought to the forefront. Because, Father, we see in the text today our urgent need for Jesus. Father, I pray you would set our souls afire. That we would truly be witnesses to Jesus in the days that we have remaining here. I pray your word would go forth with great power this morning. That it would accomplish the very thing and purpose for which you intended to accomplish. I pray you would help us to listen attentively to your word. This is your word. And I pray that as your people, we would be desirous to hear what you have to teach us. And I pray this in the name of Jesus. The one who saved us and redeemed us and bought us with his own blood. Amen. Hebrews chapter 4. Verses 12 and 13 says, For the word of God is living and active. It's living and powerful. It's sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit, of joint and marrow. It is a discerner of the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. And listen to this in verse 13. There is no creature, no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are naked and open to the eyes of him to whom we must give what? We must give account. We must give account. Judgment is coming to each one. There's no creature that's hidden. We see in Timothy, 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 4 through 6, Paul is telling Timothy that it is God our Savior who desires all men to be saved. And to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God, Paul says, and one mediator between God and man. Do you know who the mediator is this morning? That mediator is Jesus Christ. He's the mediator. The man, Jesus Christ, who gave himself a ransom for all. You see, God's desire is that all men would be saved and come to know the truth. We've been given the truth, friends. When Jesus prayed to the Father, you remember he said to sanctify his followers by the truth. And then he went on to define what that truth was. He says, your word is truth. We've been given that truth. Judgment is coming and the mediator that God has appointed is his son. And his son is going to be judging by a standard of righteousness. A standard of righteousness. John 3.16. John 3.16. Many of you in here have probably heard that one on more than one occasion. For God so loved. Only one of us know it. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son 
that whoever believes in him should not what? Should not perish, but have what? Everlasting life. By the way, he's speaking that to Nicodemus in John chapter 3. That's the context. We see a little bit later in John's gospel, chapter 16, verse 8. He's talking about the Holy Spirit. When the Holy Spirit comes, he will convict the world. This is so important because Jesus not only spoke of this, Jesus is talking about the Holy Spirit. And this Holy Spirit is going to convict the world, he says, of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. The Holy Spirit's going to convict the world of judgment. We see life and death are before us. And there's not a person here who is guaranteed another day. Not one of us are guaranteed another day. The return of our Lord is in the hands of a trustworthy Heavenly Father. Only He knows the times and the dates of the return of His Son. Judgment awaits all men here on earth. Our lives are, the Bible says, but a mist. And yet the Bible, time and time again, is pointing us to live here, right here, with a view toward eternity. Toward what the Bible calls our heavenly home. We are citizens of heaven if we are in Christ. And when we meet with the Lord in the air, Paul says to the church at Thessalonica, he says, and thus we shall always be with the Lord. We shall always be with the Lord. And he says there in the close of chapter 4 in Thessalonians, therefore comfort one another with these words. And friends, I desire for each one of you here today to be comforted by those words and by the words of this text. But I also desire that each one here know the alternative to being comforted. You see, it's, it's, um, it would be easy to talk about this God of all comfort. It would be easy to talk about this loving God. And he is a God of comfort and he is a loving God. But to talk about this God without talking also about how just he is. Without talking about how wrathful he is towards sin. If we leave out that other half of the equation, if you will, we are not representing this God from what we have before us in the truth of the word. You see, this is truly something to comfort the brethren in. Talking about being in Christ and what happens on the other side of death. What happens on the other side of the judgment? This picture that we're having, we have before us this morning is going to give us a little look and see inside what happens after we die. You see, not everyone, friends, is going to be comforted at the return of Christ. Not everyone is going to be comforted and experience the comfort that Paul speaks of to, to the church at Thessalonica not everyone when they die on earth, should they die before the Lord returns, not everyone, sadly, is going to experience this kind of comfort. That comfort, friends, can only, only come through the mediator, Jesus Christ. 
the one who redeemed you by his precious blood at the cross. I want you to know that the Lord desires all men to be saved. He desires all men to be saved. He's long-suffering toward us, the Bible says. He's patient, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 9 says. But I want you to know that God didn't just wish this to be true. But in His redemptive plan, He sent His own Son to see that men might hear the truth that they might be awakened to their sins, that they might then turn in faith, trusting Jesus, that men might have everlasting life, that men may not perish, that men might not find themselves in everlasting torment, separated from God. You see, God is merciful and He's patient. God is a God who is full of grace. Consider that God sent His Son Jesus While we were yet, what? Sinners. Sinners. Isn't that great? God didn't wait for you to get yourself cleaned up before he decided to send his son Jesus. He sent his son Jesus while we were still sinners. That's grace. We didn't deserve it. God is loving. He's holy. And as a holy God, sin cannot dwell in his presence. In fact, God is just then to punish sin. God is a God of wrath. Judgment is coming. Sin will be judged. The hearts of men will be revealed. And we're gathered here today before the one who sees all things. The one to whom we must give account. And I would ask you right here up front... Are you prepared for that? Are you prepared for that? Are you ready for that? If you look with me in your Bibles, in Luke's Gospel, I'd have you look backwards for just a moment, starting in Luke chapter 13. And I just want to just give a a couple brief preludes to the text Because context always helps us understand the text itself. I want to give you just a few snippets of context leading up to the parable in chapter 16, verses 19 to 31. In chapter 13, we see in verses 3 and 5, very similar rendering by Jesus here. He's given two stories or news items of the day. And he comes back with the same line in 3 and 5. I tell you, no, but unless you repent you will all likewise perish. Unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. If you keep reading chapter 13, verse 24, they're asking a question in 23. Are there few who are saved, Lord? And he says, strive to enter through the narrow gate. For many, I say to you, will seek to enter and will not be able They will not be able. This is similar. He goes on, he talks about some things that he shares in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew's Gospel. When he's going to say, I never knew you, depart from me. Look at verse 28. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth when you see Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, and yourselves thrust out. Verse 30 of that same chapter. And indeed there are last who will be first. And there are first who will be last. 
we're going to see a contrast painted in the parable today. Someone who spent a good majority of his life in last place here on earth. We see going into the end of chapter 13, Jesus is speaking about Jerusalem. And you see this cry of the Lord. How often I wanted to gather your children together, but you were not willing. Go on to chapter 14. He's telling a parable, starting in verse 7, of those who were invited. He tells this, look at the context, when he noted how they chose the best places. You see, all throughout here in these chapters leading up to 16, including 16, we see the Pharisaical group is, is, is the group of people that are watching. They're hovering around. They're listening. They're listening. Get this. They're listening not so that they might turn and follow this Jesus. They're listening so that they might catch him in something. They're listening to try and find something to go after him with. They're listening With ears, critical ears, they're not listening with ears that are open to hear and be saved. Chapter 14, verse 11, we see that the one who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Chapter 14, verse 33, he's talking about what it is to be a disciple. Whoever does not forsake all that he has... All that he has, even that money that you might have, as we'll see in the parable today. Whoever doesn't forsake all that he has cannot be my disciple. We're going to see that money ties into some of what we're talking about in the text in chapter 16. And then 15, the tax collectors and the sinners drew near to Jesus to hear him. They drew near to hear what he had to say. They wanted to know what Jesus had to say. In verse 2, it says the Pharisees and scribes complained, saying, this man receives sinners and he eats with them. Who is this man? And he goes on in chapter 15 and he tells three parables, doesn't he? A parable, and they all have a common theme. They all have to do with lostness. The first thing that's lost is, is what? A sheep. And then there's a coin that's lost. And then there's a lost son. And we see all throughout chapter 15 that theme of something that is lost. Something that is lost but becomes found. In regard to the son, something that was blind but now he could see. And we see that in those first two in chapter 15, there's rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents. And you get to chapter 16 then, and it says, He also said to his disciples, there was a certain rich man. There was a certain rich man. Notice the beginning of that parable because it's similar to the beginning of the parable we're looking at in verse 19. A certain rich man. He's speaking to his disciples. At least that's the context in chapter 16, verse 1. We come to find out a little bit later down the line in verse 14. Now the Pharisees, who were lovers of money, also heard all these things. They were around and heard what he just spoke. And they derided Jesus. Verse 13 of that same chapter in 16 says, You cannot serve God and mammon. You cannot serve two masters. I pick it up in verse 14 and 15. I'll read 15. And he said to them, those that derided Jesus, he said, You are those who justify yourselves before men. But God 
knows your hearts. If you underline or mark in your Bible, that might be one to underline because I believe it speaks directly to the context of the parable here. God knows your hearts. For what is highly esteemed among men is an abomination in the sight of God. What is highly esteemed among men. Friends, think about all the things around us today in this world that are highly esteemed among men. I want you to hear what Jesus has to say about those things. He says they are an abomination in his sight. In other words, they're not all that significant, are they? In other words, Jesus hates an abomination. When we talk about God abominating something, he hates it. The law and the prophets were until John, the Baptist. Since that time, the kingdom of God has been preached. And by the way, that's interesting because when Jesus comes on the scene early on in the Gospels, he says the kingdom of God is at hand. The kingdom of God is fulfilled. Repent. Believe in the gospel. Believe in the good news. That's the the word of Jesus right out of the gate in the Gospels. It's easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one tittle of the law to fail. By the way, Jesus is upholding the law. Jesus is not squashing the law. Jesus came not to abolish the law. Right? Isn't that what he says in the Sermon on the Mount? He didn't come to abolish. He came to fulfill it. In Romans chapter 10, verse 4, we see that Christ is the telos. He is the end of the law. He is the, the fullness, the completion. He's at the end of it. He is the one who's fulfilling the law. The law is holy. The law is just. The law is good, he says in Romans. He's lifting up the law, not squashing it. And you know, I found in 18, as I was, I was reading this text this week, 18 was, was a head scratcher. I was trying to figure out, why did, we're 18. This doesn't seem to be a, a connector here. I mean, I, I get what's going on here above that and then the parable itself. But 18, how does 18 fit into the parable to come? Here's what I believe to be true. I believe as Jesus is raising up the law in the eyes of those who were listening, the Pharisees, the ones who thought they knew the law, who thought they understood the law, I believe he is setting forth a truth about the law here in verse 18. He's saying essentially that Hey, the, the truth of the law here is, is true. It's true in this regard. This is still true. Whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery. Whoever marries her who is divorced from her husband commits adultery. This is still true about the law. Jesus is saying, I want you to know this is one point about the law that is still true. Now he's going to go on and he's going to illustrate. Parables do that, friends. Parables illustrate truth. Okay? Parables paint a picture of something that he is teaching. So now in 19 through 31, he is going to paint a picture to illustrate some of these things that he's just been talking about. That's where he's going. What we see in 19 through 31, he is illustrating the outcome of God knowing the hearts of men. And this parable is a picture of what goes on after death. It contrasts one man who believes upon Jesus and one man who lived for himself. Man cannot effectively judge the heart of another, but God knows the hearts of all men. Verse 15. And therefore, his judgments are just. 
His judgments are right all the time. God's judgments are right. So this morning, as we look at 19 through 31, we're going to see the life and the death, the eternity, if you will, of these two men that are put forth in the parable. It's going to contrast the earthly state with their eternal state, what's after the grave. We're going to be looking, in short, at two men. Two men are going to be painted for us here. There's going to be one common end for both of these men. And there's going to be two eternal realities, heaven and hell. And then in closing, I'd like to speak to the one prescribed way. It's sort of like a, a pressing in to understanding where we need to be as we come to the end of this parable. There's a truth that needs to be spoken of. A truth that needs to be embraced on the back end here. So we have two men. Let's look at these two men. In verse 19, we see there was a certain rich man. And this rich man was clothed in purple and fine linen. This rich man fared sumptuously every day. So the description is one of an individual who, sometimes in our home we, we, we joke about this, we use this terminology just as kind of, we talk about an unlimited budget. This guy, I think, has an unlimited budget. I also think he had, uh, because he had an unlimited budget, he had an unlimited uh, menu at his disposal. He had, it seems, all the food, all the clothing he could want. It was at his disposal. Unlimited. He fared sumptuously. Sumptuously, abundantly, he had it all. All that the world could offer, that is. Now, we're not given a whole lot of information about this rich man, but what we are given, I believe, is instructive. The detail speaks only of what he had, how he lived, how much he had, and the emphasis seems to be upon his daily needs being abundantly met. I want you to keep in mind the context of the parable. Jesus is teaching a message through the parable, not only for his disciples, chapter 16, verse 1, but more pointedly to the Pharisees, chapter 16, verse 14, who were lovers of money. Keep that in mind as we read the parable. Now, one of the two men that are highlighted in the parable is rich, a certain rich man. And it seems that Jesus begins with what I would just call a lure. He puts the lure out there. It's a line to capture the attention, I believe, of the Pharisees, the Pharisees who were lovers of money. And I believe Jesus had a very captive audience right at the beginning of this parable. There was a certain rich man. You see, they were hanging around, I believe, early on. They heard the parable of the unjust steward, too. 
And perhaps they thought that since they were around and since they picked up on, you know, Jesus heard that they didn't like what he was teaching and preaching, they were maybe waiting around for him to say something differently. And what does he do? He goes right back to that point. There was a certain rich man. Proverbs 18, 11 says that the rich man's wealth is his strong city and like a high wall in his own esteem. What about this other man? There are two men in the text, in the parable. Notice verses 20 and 21. But there was a certain beggar named Lazarus, full of sores, who was laid at his gate... Desiring to be fed with the crumbs which fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, the dogs came and licked his sores. We have here presented before us a rich man and a poor man. Notice that verse 20 begins, but. But there was a certain beggar named Lazarus. A rich man and a poor man set apart by the conjunction, but. Jesus desires for his listener to see and hear a stark contrast. And that's what the word but does in the English language. But, we have this, but, the rich man who had everything his heart desired versus poor man who has a name. Did you notice he has a name? Lazarus. His name is given. What do we know about this poor man? As Jesus is teaching the parable, what does he have to say about the poor man? He says he has, he's full of sores. Full of sores. I was thinking about Job. From top of his head to his toes. Scraping himself. Remember him sitting there in the ashes? This, this particular poor man was full of sores. If you've ever had sores all over your body, you know it's very uncomfortable, very painful, perhaps. You're walking around daily in discomfort. This man was full of sores. Being full of sores, you know what else was probably also a reality for this man? He was probably someone people didn't like to look at. He was probably not a very handsome man. These sores made him look to those who were watching as someone that they would just rather keep their distance from. He was full of sores. What else does it say? It says he was laid at his gate. Whose gate? The rich man's gate. He was laid. Don't, don't bypass the, the, the verbiage here. It's a passive voice. He didn't decide that this day he was going to get up and go and walk and plant himself at the gate of the rich man. He was laid at the gate. This man was in sore condition. Not only did he have sores all over his body, but he was incapable, it seems, of moving himself all that well. He was laid at the gate. And notice his desire. His desire, the text says, is to be fed. 
His desire is to be fed. It doesn't tell us that he was fed. He desired to be fed. To be fed with what? Sumptuous fare? No. His desire was to be fed by the crumbs that fell from the table of the rich man. That was his desire. And then lastly, we see this added on. Moreover, dogs came and licked his sores. The poor man is is physically a mess. Sores encompassing his body. He was unable on his own to sit at the rich man's gate. He was laid there. Indicates he was in such bad condition. He's presented as one longing for food. He's content with scraps. He's content with the crumbs. Anything that fell from the rich man's table. And the dogs are licking the sores of the poor man. Not, I believe, not inflicting additional wounds or suffering. But ministering to him. Licking his sores. Now you might think about that picture and think, well, that's gross. But I would venture to say that those dogs licking his wounds provided some comfort. In fact, I would go so far as to say that the dogs, and perhaps that's part of the teaching here. The dogs coming and licking his sores. It's put here in the text simply to say that This poor man was receiving comfort from no one but the dogs. The dogs seemed to be the only ones to provide him any comfort. That was the state of this man. Remember the picture that's being painted. There is a contrast being painted here. So we have a rich man who's dressed in the finest. A poor man who probably was... Wearing something tattered and torn, something he had worn for quite some time. The rich man was eating sumptuously. The poor man was eating sparingly. The rich man ate to the fullest every day. And the poor man lived each day wondering where my next meal is going to come from. You see the contrast? Big difference. That's the picture Jesus is painting. The contrast right here has been set in these first few verses. But for what purpose? We're introduced to two men, but we see that they have one common end. That's the second part of this. There's one common end. Look at verses 22 and 23. So it was that the beggar died, was carried by the angels to Abraham's bosom. The rich man also died and was buried And being in torments in Hades, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham afar off and Lazarus in his bosom. Ecclesiastes chapter 3 verse 20 says that all go to one place. All are from the dust and all return to the dust. All. There's nothing specific in here that says that the rich get to go here The poor get to go here. Those who have certain titles here get to go this place. Those who don't achieve a certain amount here on earth go here. That's not what the Bible says. All. There's one common end to all men. 
And the parable teaches us something about death. It's the common end of all men. It's the common end for the poor man and the rich man. He's just painted a contrast and shown us how different these two men are. And now death comes. And now he's showing us immediately the level ground. And that's the way it is with death, isn't it? Lots of things may have differentiated the two men in this life, but when death comes, all of a sudden things change. Proverbs chapter 23, verse 5 says, Will you set your eyes on that which is not? For riches certainly make themselves wings. They fly away like an eagle toward heaven. Who's he writing this to? Lovers of money. Proverbs 11, verse 4, in fact, says, Riches do not profit in the day of wrath, but righteousness delivers from death. Riches do not profit in the day of wrath, but righteousness delivers from death. How true that proverb is. See, one common end to the two men. Death is said to be the great equalizer, isn't it? No status, no position, no title, no amount of money in your bank. When death comes, it doesn't matter. The principle that's set forth in that proverb, chapter 11, verse 4, applies here, I believe, on two fronts. First of all, riches do not profit when it comes time for Jesus to judge. And secondly, you might ask, what does profit on that day of wrath? What does profit? Righteousness. Righteousness does profit. Think about the hymn and ask the question, are you dressed in his righteousness alone? If so, then continuing with the idea of the hymn, you are deemed faultless to stand before his throne. The beggar died and the rich man also died. Men of high degree will die and men of low degree will die. Men esteemed highly in the eyes of the world will one day die. Men viewed as lowly pilgrims, the marginal of society, they too will one day die. Remember the context of the parable. The Pharisees are lovers of money. Money, friends, is only good while you're here on earth. It's useful and helpful, yes, while you're here. But we also know that we are to be good stewards of what God's entrusted to us. If we know it's going to fly away like an eagle, as the proverb says, how then should we handle it? If I can't take it with me when I die. Now, that's what Randy Alcorn in his book, he always gives that, I love that image and picture. He says, you're never going to see on the back end of a hearse a U-Haul can't take it with you you can't take it with you and so if that's the case if I can't take it with me when I die how then should I steward the money the things that have been entrusted to me you see this parable I find this so interesting this parable doesn't end at the death of these two men it doesn't end here in fact the majority of the parable 
is what happens after death. I want you to see that. The majority of what happens in this parable is what happens after death. Any of you here ever wondered about what will happen to you after you die? Anybody? Anybody ever think about that? What happens after you die? I think we get a picture here. Through the parable, I think we get a little glimpse of what happens. This parable paints a picture of what's happening on the other side of the grave. It's communicating with us about a conversation on the other side. That was my working title. A conversation on the other side. The majority of the parable is a conversation about these two people, one of them in heaven and one of them in hell. Notice that the parable clearly indicates the state of the poor man. It says in verse 22, he was carried by the angels to Abraham's bosom. Now, a couple things to note here. Abraham's bosom, that phrase, is sort of an odd phrase, right? He was, he was carried by the angels to Abraham's bosom. Uh, one writer, speaking of this, talked about how um, Abraham's bosom, this was, this was a, a place of, of rest, signified a place of rest, a place of safety to which all believing Jews were carried after death. You, you do recall, don't you, that the Jews held up Abraham in high regard? You remember John chapter 8? I encourage you to read John 8 sometime and you'll be able to see that. They declare themselves to be children of Abraham. Abraham is our father, they said to Jesus on that day and that occasion. And Jesus is trying to tell them, no, 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 if you were... If you were children of Abraham, you would hear what I have to say. But you are instead children of, of your father, who is the devil. That was another conversation in John chapter 8. But they bring up Abraham. Abraham was the patriarch. He was the, the, the one that they looked to, Father Abraham. And we see, even in the passage I read in thirteen, Luke 13, 28, we see Jesus there. He says, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth when you see whom? Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, the patriarchs, and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, and you yourselves thrust out. You're going to see them, but you yourselves are going to be thrust out because I never knew you. Matthew chapter 8, verse 11. Jesus, in similar fashion, he's teaching, and he says, I say to you that many will come from the east and west and will sit down with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. Notice too in verse 22, not only the fact that the angels carry him to Abraham's bosom, but notice that the poor man, Lazarus, the means by which he gets there. He's carried by the angels. Oh, friends, there's there's something comforting there. He's carried by the angels. To Abraham's bosom. And I, and, I, and I love this. I love what's written here. And, and there's, you know, it's not enough to simply say Lazarus went to heaven. The picture is a plurality of God's ministering servants escorting him to Abraham's bosom. See, God is providing and he's caring for his saints at death. He's extending uh, heavenly escort, if you will, to Abraham's bosom. He watches over the way of the righteous, not just while we're here on earth, but perhaps even more so after we die. 
He's taking care of all the plans. He's taking care of all the arrangements. In Philippians 1.23, Paul says, I'm hard-pressed between the two, the two being whether to be here and stay here or to be with Jesus. And he says, I'm hard-pressed having a desire to depart and be with Christ, which is far better. You see, while we want to, I believe, be careful and cautious to press doctrinal truths in the parable, because sometimes in the parable and the teaching, Jesus is, is preaching and teaching uh, toward one end or just a, a handful, a couple uh, ends in his teaching. And it's important that we don't get too caught up in the details and dive too far down in and make something mean something that it's not intended to mean. But I do believe there's something to be said here about God's providential protection over his saints when they leave this earth. Absent from the body, Paul says, present with the Lord. Present with the Lord. So we have two men and have set up this stark contrast. We see they have one common end, that death has come to both of them. Lazarus is with Abraham in heaven. And the rich man, according to verse 23, he's in Hades. He's in torment in Hades. The contrast has shifted a bit, hasn't it? That, that contrast we saw up front, it's shifted, hasn't it? It's shifted, I want to say this and make very clear, in case any are wondering. The shift has occurred not because... One was rich here on earth and now he deserves to be poor for all eternity. The shift happens not because the poor man here on earth just got the shaft and now he's getting a reward. Let's be clear, that's not the reason for the shift. The shift goes much deeper than that. The shift goes and penetrates deep to the heart. The shift is is one that's happening because... There is one who believed and set his heart upon the Lord Jesus Christ for the salvation of his soul. And the other who decided that he was going to take the money and use it for himself and live all of his days for himself. Without any concern about Jesus. That's the primary result of the shift we see in the text. The one who fared sumptuously every day is now in torments in Hades. The beggar who sat at the rich man's gate searching out food has been taken directly to Abraham's bosom in heaven. A dramatic shift has occurred. And what happened to change things around? Death. Death. J.C. Ryle, writing about this particular parable, he says, Jesus would have the Pharisees in particular, as they're listening, would have them learn from this parable that Abraham himself could do nothing for those who died in sin. And that connection with Abraham would save no one from sin. Friends, connection with Jesus Christ is what saves you from sin. Not connection with Abraham, not connection with any other person. Jesus says, I am the way and the truth and the life. No man comes to the Father. No one comes to God except through me. Jesus is the way. 
we see two eternal realities presented in the text. Look at verse 24. Then he cried, the rich man, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue for I'm tormented in this flame. But Abraham said, Son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things and likewise Lazarus evil things. But now he is comforted and you are tormented. And besides all this, between us and you, there is a great gulf fixed so that those who want to pass from here to you cannot, nor can those from there pass to us. The parable now gives us a listening ear. We get to listen in to a conversation, don't we? One man pleading to another. A caller from the torment of Hades is making a long distance call, if you will. The Bible says it's from afar off. And he's calling out to Abraham. And the parable presents heaven and hell as two eternal realities. You know, there are a lot of people in the world today that don't buy into heaven. They don't buy into hell. They think it makes maybe a good story. It's not real. Friends, I want to tell you this morning. God's word says it is real. God's word is painting a picture of two eternal realities. There's not a third, there's not a fourth, there's not a fifth. There are two eternal realities, heaven and hell, to which all men will go one day. That's the picture that we have before us. Upon death, men and women will be in one place or the other. And it won't be a chance encounter that you end up in either eternal destination. See, the man who finds himself in Hades has been given opportunity in life. But it seems here context-wise, his money perhaps got in the way. Couldn't see much else besides his money. Pleasure living was a lot of fun. He lived it up. He ate and fared sumptuously every day. He was selfish. And he used what he'd been given to satisfy only himself. In short, he'd been given what Jesus says, his reward in full. This man had been given his reward in full in this life. First thing he asks for, notice, is mercy. Isn't that interesting? That's the first thing he cries out for. Father Abraham, have mercy on me. And I would say to this man, based on what I know to be true from the word, mercy has already been given to you. For when the kindness and love of the Savior appeared, he saved us not from works of our own righteousness, but by his own mercy he saved us, Titus chapter 3 says. By his mercy he saved us. 
This man here finds himself in hell and he's crying out for mercy. You see, the one who finds himself in hell is going to realize the error of his ways. His eyes will be opened. Mercy is going to be his cry. And yet God's mercy has already been provided. It's it's been provided. He sent Jesus to live and die as our substitute. It's the Old Testament idea of look to the Son and live. This man chose in this life not to look to the Son. But he looked himself, he looked at what he had. He relied upon his stuff. All of his money. Thinking about his next great meal. Thinking about what he's going to wear. His full wardrobe. Asking for mercy once you're in hell, friends, is too late. It's too late. Ryle says in his commentary, there is no hope of deliverance from hell for those who die in sin. Once in hell, men are in hell forever. Now, we might grade at that. We might not like that. That is the truth of the scriptures, friend. He goes on, he says, the doctrines of purgatory as a, or of a limited duration of punishment. There are some who are teaching that you're only punished for a limited time and then something happens and you're no longer punished. Th- those doctrines are incapable of reconciliation with this text, he says. And I believe it's absolutely true. How do you reconcile that to the text? He says, send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am tormented in this flame. Here is a man who is speaking from experience. He's speaking in this conversation, and he is hot. He is blazing hot. He is on fire hot. And he wants Lazarus to come and dip the coolness of his finger on his tongue because it's so hot. Bring me relief. I need relief. I'm in agony down here. And isn't it interesting that the picture that Jesus presents up front, the contrast And how Lazarus, this beggar, didn't seem to get much comfort or relief from anyone except those dogs. Now here's this man in hell. And he's asking Abraham to send Lazarus. That's the characterization we see here in the text of hell. Hot, fiery, burning, place of everlasting torment. It's not a picture we like to talk a whole lot about. We like to talk about the God who makes us feel good. But I'm here to tell you, there are two eternal realities. Heaven and hell. Heaven with Jesus for all eternity. Hell separated from God for all eternity. By the way, friends, God is not unjust. God is not unfair. God is not somehow wicked or perverted in sending people to hell. God doesn't send people to hell. But men and women make the decision 
on their own to walk contrary, to disobey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's what 2 Thessalonians chapter 1 says. If you read 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, it tells you very clearly He's going to come in flaming fire, taking vengeance on those who do not know God, on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's so plain to see it. And yet so many people choose to turn away from it. And in particular, we have before us a picture of a man who was holding so tightly, it seems, to his money, not willing to let it go. Seems that that drove everything in his life. Now he finds himself in hell and he's calling out for mercy. Chapter 16, verse 25, he says, Remember, Abraham says, you receive your good things in your lifetime, in your lifetime, while you were on earth. Lazarus, his evil things. Now he is comforted. Now he has rest. The rest for your soul. Lazarus has that now, Abraham says. Lazarus has true peace with God now because Lazarus chose what was better. Jesus. No, the parable doesn't say a whole lot about Lazarus and his receiving and believing of Jesus. But I do believe the point here is to let us know that one is in heaven, one is in hell. How does one get to heaven? It poses the question, how does he get there? How is it that angels carried him to the bosom of Abraham? Not just by an accident. That's not the teaching of the scripture. It's by ones placing their faith and trust in Christ alone for salvation. He says, besides this, all... Between us and you, there is a great gulf fixed so that those who want to pass from here to you cannot, cannot. It's not possible. Abraham's saying, Lazarus couldn't come down to you and minister to you even if he wanted to. There's a great gulf, a chasm that's fixed. Between heaven and hell, there is this great gulf. And friends, there are two eternal realities before us still today. I think it's important for each of you to know that Jesus holds the keys to Hades, to death, and he serves as the way and the truth and the life to entrance into the heavenly city. Now, doesn't it make sense if, if we know the one person Jesus, if we know Jesus and we know his authority, we know that he's over all things. We know he has the keys to Hades. We know that he's the way into the heavenly city. If we know these things, why then would we turn away from him? Why? Why would we choose to do so? We see two men. We see one common end and we see two eternal realities. Look at the last part of this. Okay, he says, oh, Lazarus can't come down here and minister to me. So then what's he say? I beg you, therefore, Father Abraham, that you would send him to my father's house. For I have five brothers. 
that he may testify to them. By the way, the word testify there is used elsewhere. It's used in a very solemn way to speak specifically of the gospel. Of the gospel. That you may send him to my father's house. I have five brothers so that he may testify to them lest they also come to this place of torment. And Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. Friends, one of the things that is going to be considered probably the worst of torment is being in hell and understanding and knowing that you lived your life for something other than Jesus, for something other than the truth. Because that's what's going to torment you. You're going to know the truth. You're going to know the truth. Imagine being in hell. You're going to know the truth. But it's too late at that point. And he's asking Abraham to send him to my father's house. I've got five brothers. Some of you here today have siblings. Some of you here today have cousins. Some of you here have good friends. And you have a very clear understanding that these people do not know, do not have a relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. And this rich man understood this. The rich man understood he had five brothers and the five brothers may very well have been living exactly like he was living for himself. And he, he came to understand he didn't want them to be where he was at. Will you send Lazarus to just testify, to, to speak a word? I beg you. And Abraham says they have Moses and the prophets. Moses representative of the law. They have the law and the prophets, if we were to boil this down. We're talking about the scriptures, friends. They have the scriptures. This is so important to get. I believe this was something Jesus was wanting them to hear, not only about the money that they were lovers of, but also the word. What advantage is there then in being a Jew? Romans chapter 3, verse 1. One of the advantages that they had, they were the carriers of the oracles of God. They knew God's word, supposedly. Jesus tells them, by the way, you are ones who say you know the law, and yet the law speaks of me. This word, the scriptures testify of me. You've missed me, Jesus says to them on another occasion. So he's speaking about the law and the prophets. And he says, no, they have Moses and the prophets, they need to hear them. And not content with the answer in verse 30, he says, No, Father Abraham, but if one goes to them from the dead, they will repent. If one goes to them from the dead, they will repent. Don't miss this. Verse 31. If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, if they do not hear the scriptures... Neither will they be persuaded, though one rise from the dead. Friends, should I point out to you that not long after this, there was a man named Lazarus who actually died. And there was a man named Lazarus who was actually raised from the dead. Do you remember that in John? And do you remember that after he was raised, there were still many Jews 
in particular who did not believe. And do you know that a little while after that, there was a man named Jesus who went to the cross and he died. And according to the scriptures, he was raised. And when he was raised, do you remember that there were many Jews who still did not believe? Abraham's saying to this rich man, even though one come to them from the dead, it's almost like this, give me a sign, show me a wonder, and they'll repent. Is that how one comes to saving faith? According to the word, is that how it happens? I love what Baxter says. He says, God will bless his own means. Affrighting men or scaring men, right? Affrighting them will not renew their natures and kindle in them a love to God and holiness. This torment may be the worst of all. Realizing that you disobeyed and ignored Jesus. And the thoughts of siblings, the thoughts of spouses, cousins, relatives, many who live just like you lived on earth, enjoying that good life. You see, in hell, you will be tormented about those who are still on earth, those still operating in disobedience to the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. In hell, you will know the truth. It's a place of torment, though, because the, 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 the place, unlike those in heaven, knowing the truth in hell will not set you free. Remember what Jesus says about know the truth and the truth will set you free? In hell, you're going to know the truth, but you're not going to be set free. Torment. That's the picture. How do men come to saving faith? I believe the scriptures testify. Faith comes by hearing. And hearing by what? The word of God. Faith comes by hearing. And hearing by the word of God. You see, the people who were listening this day, there were a group of disciples who were listening, hungry to hear what Jesus had to say. But there were also a group of Pharisees, lovers of money, who all they wanted to do was to find a way to get rid of this Jesus. They were not willing to hear. They had no ears to hear what the Lord had to say. Friends, I believe the end of this parable points us in the direction of asking ourselves, are we ready? Are we prepared? We see, see the lives of these two men. There's one common end. By the way, the common end that these two men presented in the parable have, it's the common end that you and me also have today. Unless the Lord shall return, every single one of us are going to die. To those in Christ Jesus, death is not a frightening thing. It ought not be a fearful thing. Especially when we see the idea here that's presented in the parable of being not in torment, but what? Comforted. We're comforted with Jesus. There's peace with Jesus. There's joy with Jesus. I would ask you today, as you look at this parable, to consider for your own life. What are you pursuing? How are you living? 
What are you holding on to? Is there something that's blocking your way to walk with the Lord Jesus? You might know of him. You've heard of him. Some of you sat in this chair week after week after week after week. You've heard the name Jesus, and yet you've been living your life in disobedience to Jesus. I want to remind you again of what Jesus says to the ones who said, Lord, Lord, didn't I do this in your name? Didn't I do that in your name? And Jesus is going to say, away from me, I never knew you. Friends, when he says, away from me, I never knew you. Away from me. That away from me is not, I'm going to put you in time out for a time. That away from me is a forever separation. All eternity. I don't say all of this either to scare any of you this morning. I say what I'm saying to present what I believe to be true about the scriptures. A very real heaven, a very real hell awaits. And right now, while you have breath in you, you have the ability. God's given you ability. He set eternity in the hearts of men, hasn't he? I was reminded of the passage in 1 Timothy. As Timothy is closing up that letter, chapter 6. He says, Command those who are rich in this present age not to be haughty, not to trust in uncertain riches. Friends, and it's not just riches. It could be anything. This parable happens to speak specifically to the riches of the Pharisees. Not to trust in uncertain riches, but in the living God who gives us richly all things to enjoy. Let them do good that they may be rich in good works, ready to give, willing to share, storing up for themselves a good foundation for the time to come. For when? For the time to come. Store up for yourselves treasures not here on earth where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moth and rust do not destroy, where thieves do not break in and steal. You cannot serve two masters. Storing up for themselves a good foundation for the time to come that they may lay hold on eternal life. Friends, it's my prayer. That would be true for you this morning. I appreciate Mark reading that passage of scripture in Isaiah 55. I think that's so, so significant. Seek the Lord while he may be found. While he may be found. Not like this man who's crying out for mercy while he's sitting in hell. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he's near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord and he will have mercy on him. Now he'll have mercy on him. Turn, repent. Repent from your sin. Turn to God in faith. Do works befitting a repentant life. That's what he's called us to. Listen, our God is a God who will abundantly pardon. Whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Now is the time of salvation. Now. Friends, if you don't know and don't have a relationship with this Lord Jesus, my prayer is that today you begin that relationship with the Lord Jesus. Today. Don't wait. Don't wait. 
And if you need to talk to somebody, talk to Ralph, talk to myself, talk to dad or mom. Talk to somebody today. Today. Before you leave, talk to somebody. Get this settled today for the Lord's sake. Praise God for his word. Let's pray. Father, you are good, and you do good. Continue to teach us your statutes, I pray, Father. Oh, Lord, I pray as your word has gone out today, Lord, I pray that we would understand, as as this picture has been painted of these two men, the one common end of death, and the two eternal realities, Father, it's my hope that you, through your Holy Spirit, would help us all to see and understand that there is one prescribed way that you desire for us to live here. One prescribed way that is going to see that we are with you in heaven. There are not many ways to get to heaven that's a lie that people have shared around we've heard it we've all heard those words from people there are many ways Lord your word says something contrary your word says that there is no other name given among men under heaven by which we must be saved Jesus is the way he's the truth and the life Father, I pray that we would adhere to that. We would hold fast to that. We would not forfeit that truth. Lord, nor will we forfeit speaking of that truth to other people who need to know the truth that Jesus saves. Jesus alone saves. I pray, Lord, your word this morning would shake us up, Lord, and move us to evaluate and be able to ask questions of ourselves, to know where we stand with you now, to make things right with you, to then be assured through your Holy Spirit. Your Spirit in us assures our spirit that we are children of God, heirs with Christ. Father, I pray each one would know with great assurance this morning who they are in Christ and be able to live in the time that you give us, be able to live as citizens of heaven here looking forward to that day when either we die or Jesus returns and we get to be with you in heaven. Thank you, Father, for your truth. And I pray that we as a people would stand firmly upon this truth, that we would show love and show mercy and show kindness and compassion to others. Therefore, knowing the judgment of the Lord, the terror of the Lord yet to come, I pray, Lord, that we, like Paul, would persuade men Move us to do that, Lord. Move us to speak, to not be ashamed of Jesus. I pray, Lord, that you would bear much fruit in and through us as we speak of your name. And I pray this in the name of Jesus, the one who redeemed us and saved us. Amen.